Hello, I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Echo and Substance Use from the BC CSU. This is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salatooth Nations. I'm a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist. I'm also the physician education lead at the BC Centre on Substance Use, and I like to keep busy, so I'm also the medical director at the Portland Hotel Society in Vancouver's downtown east side. Busy with good things, though. I also am very busy. I'm a journalist in multiple platforms. I've spent more than a decade reporting on substance use, opioids, mental health, and the current overdose crisis. So this podcast is for healthcare providers, and we're focusing on issues in British Columbia around opioid use disorder. I love an interesting discussion, and in this podcast, we're going to hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experiences on approaches to substance use. So today we're talking about trauma. Now, not everyone who uses drugs has experienced trauma, and a lot of people who have experienced trauma don't use drugs. I think this is such a good topic to chat through as clinicians because it really influences how I set up my clinic and how I approach my care. We do know that research shows that people with substance use disorders are more likely to have a history of trauma and violence in the general population. And this can include bad experiences with police and with medical professionals. So today we're discussing trauma and its links to substance use disorder, as well as the concept of trauma and violence-informed care. To be able to use trauma and violence-informed care with your patients, even if you're not a mental health professional, is the key to building strong relationships with people and have better outcomes for them. Today, we're going to be speaking with Christina Chant, a clinical nurse specialist. But first, we're going to meet with someone with lived experience of the links between adverse childhood experiences, trauma, and addiction. I talked to Guy Felicella. He's a peer clinical advisor with both the BC Centre on Substance Use and Vancouver Coastal Health, and he shared his story. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Guy. I grew up in a challenged uh, home life, suffered... uh you know, uh, immense verbal and physical abuse, um, and then found my way looking for ways to cope with that uh, that punishing pain uh, inside. It was like uh, a void that existed in my soul. And by the time I was uh, 12 years old, um, I could no longer cope with the isolation and the despair that it was either I would end my life, and um, I found, you know, one of the, at that time, what was needed, which was uh, street substances. And that literally um, gave me the ability uh, to cope and manage the pain that I was struggling with inside. You know, what I didn't understand back then that the suffering that I was enduring as a child would unfortunately be the suffering that I was gonna endure as a drug user for many decades. So I added even more layers of trauma, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, I've I, I'd always described it as you know when I when I ventured into the downtown east side at the age of you know 13, what I'd noticed is that uh, people were broken, and the, the reason why I could see that is because I was broken, and what I'd found out later on in life is that society's actually broken, and we had become the collateral damage of that brokenness, and so. It was a community of brokenness searching for healing. And for me, I found that healing through other people's brokenness. And it really shaped my life for what it is today. It's about not impacting trauma on people that are struggling. 
And it's that compassion that actually wooed me into the person that I am today. Is there anything that you found uh, in terms of your own recovery journey or getting treatment or help um, from the healthcare system that uh, worked and didn't work when it came to understanding or, or empathizing with your, your experiences of trauma? You know, I think peop- what people often see with addiction is they, they see the substance. You know, my wife describes it to me as this, that beyond the scars of addiction that riddled this man's body from his head to his toe, I saw past that and I saw his heart. And I saw a human being that was struggling, but one that cared about people. And that, that in itself, a lot of the times in the healthcare system, and I never try to blame anybody, um, because I don't think people really understood. And with addiction, people can't understand the madness of it, and people fear what they can't understand. And addiction is one of those things that it's isolating, it can be ugly, it can be angry, but that's not the person. The person inside just doesn't have an outlet or a means to portray what they're struggling with. And it's usually because of the foundation of their childhood, which was a lot of, they don't trust anybody, it's hard to reach out, that still existed in the healthcare system. And so really what you have is like the abuse that you endured as a child was now the same abuse from society. And so it makes it really hard for people to have to be able to open up and reach out about these things that they're struggling with. What you see in, in any uh, healthcare system or any organization is if you look at the beauty of the people that work for the organization. There's some really good people with some big hearts that really cared. And I tell you, I, I contribute a lot of my success to the people that never gave up on me, constantly came up to me, constantly gave me another option saying, Guy, can we help you with your leg? Can we take you to the hospital? We'll stay with you. We'll wait till you get admitted. We'll come back and visit you. And they did. Not only did they say that, but they did that understanding that they knew that I didn't trust many people. And in knowing that, they built that relationship over the years. And I credit them for the success that I have today in my life. It strikes me that there's some uh, concrete lessons here for physicians and nurses that, about how to approach somebody in the throes of substance use uh, when they come to you, whether it's uh, wanting help with that or with other medical issues that may have stemmed from it. Do you have any advice, any, any thoughts on how to approach that, how to see that beauty in that person? And, and uh, kind of, I, I know that you bridge the harm reduction and recovery kind of worlds in many ways through your own journey. What would you say to a physician who's hearing someone say, you know, coming to them for help? Well, I, I mean, I, I think the thing that you really have to ask is what does the individual that's coming to you want? Never mind your own expectation on things or how you see things in your life or how you see things moving forward. But just ask, like, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And if you can, if you can reduce 
one of the person's traumas out of their life, even if it's just one thing, you know, take that off their mind, they'll be more inclined to reach out for other things. But however, in some relationships with the doctors and the patients, it's just a surface relationship. You have authority. I know this. I'm coming into your office. I'm going to tell you everything you want to hear. And there's that mistrust on both sides. You know, even when you're dispensing and you have to go and be daily witnessed, there's no room for, for anybody to move forward. So in order for that to change, I think you really have to look at the whole system because maybe the system that's created continues to keep people trapped in addiction instead of the opposite of trying to pe find people some freedom from addiction and move forward in a way where it would help the individual because if you don't give people hope, then what do you really have? And of course, trauma is a very isolating experience. It's even one of the symptoms of PTSD. So maybe that one interaction in the healthcare system, it could be a thing that helps somebody uh, feel less isolated. Yeah, you, you know, it, it's true. You only get one chance at a first impression, right? Because then after that, if it's a bad impression, then you're just repairing constantly. And... I've seen the healthcare system get a lot better, which is great, um, but we have a lot more work to do. I'm always grateful for, for somebody that used harm reduction services on me, but also gave me the opportunity to say, guy, do you need a break? Nobody's talking to you about getting off drugs. We're just asking you, your leg's a little messed up. We don't want you to lose that. Tell me a little bit about who Guy Felicella is today. I mean, I'm just a person that understands the struggle. Um, even though I'm in recovery, I know how challenging it is for, for people to get out. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's such an honor. Oh, thanks. Glad, glad to be a part of it. Guy Felicella is a peer clinical advisor with Vancouver Coastal Health and the BCCSU. That was really interesting. That link that Guy talks about between adverse childhood experiences and trauma is documented in the research. Adverse childhood experiences, including child welfare involvement, have been found to be associated with opiate use disorder specifically. If you hear people talking about ACEs, that's what they're talking about, something I learned. And like Guy says, you only get one chance at a first impression. So we wanted to find out how primary care practitioners can bring trauma and violence-informed care into their practice and make sure that first meeting is a positive one. Oh, it's such an important issue. Christina Chant is here to help us answer that question. She's a clinical nurse specialist, registered nurse, and a member of our editorial board. In addition to her own practice with patients with mental health and substance use issues, she's also experienced the flip side of this as a family member supporting a loved one navigating these systems. To start out, can we talk a little bit about what the history of trauma can do to a person physically? Because it has ongoing physical implications for people. First, I would just say that for each person, I think how they experience trauma um, and how it manifests in the body or emotionally can be different, right? And I think that speaks to like the individual resilience of folks as well as like where they're growing up, the context of 
their family and whatnot. How we might see this uh, might be like the somatic experience of trauma. So that might be in the person experiencing like irritability or coming in with their stomach um, not feeling so well or having trouble sleeping. The physical manifestation of this really is different for different people. Uh, over time, if this these trauma exposures are prolonged, so for example, a person who has experienced childhood abuse and didn't have the opportunity to find safety so that nervous system activation uh, is not able to settle, they may have learned to cope with it by kind of dissociating or creating distance, but it may show up in their inability to get a good night's sleep. I wanted to kind of dive a bit into uh, what trauma and violence informed care looked like for you. But first, what are some of the connections between post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD and addiction? One of those pivotal studies is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Why that was so elucidating, I think, for many of us is that you took this population of mostly uh, middle-class white folks who have insurance in, in the U.S., where you see these linkages of having you know, ad an adverse childhood experience, which could be experiencing a divorce, it could be like seeing a parent experience abuse, and seeing the linkages that there is a relationship between those childhood experiences and to smoking or having chronic health issues or having like a substance use issue. And this isn't just for people's childhood, it's commonly for people who had these adverse childhood experiences. Um, say again, they're not able to self-soothe. So like when we're feeling that stress, there's that cortisol release, right? And if we're not able to learn how to self-soothe or we learned in certain ways, and I wouldn't say that like this is like for everyone again, but many people will say, well, I'm, I'm using this. This is the only thing that will help me feel comfortable or it helps me feel numb. It helps me so I don't have to hear these voices. We know that there's uh, an important role of resilience factors and different coping skills and relationships and social connection that um, help people heal through these experiences. But we now kind of have a broader knowledge about what trauma can actually look like. And that can look like historical trauma. So looking at the impact of colonization, or it can be looking at different wars. And then there's also the impact of intergenerational traumas. And then I would also just put a note in there too, about like what we know about um, experiences of things like systemic racism and racism as its own determinant of health. So when we look at like that larger picture and then think about that on the individual, well, people could be experiencing kind of repetitive harms on a daily basis, being cognizant of that kind of routine exposure and what that can mean for your nervous system. You might feel activated, how that impacts your moods, your thoughts, your feelings, how you feel safe accessing different services or the world around you. Well, if that's your experience where you're having a lot of harms on a daily basis, or you're feeling exposed, you literally feel like your nervous system is on edge, you feel raw, it's going to be really hard to feel safe. Mm. Let's talk a bit about what trauma-informed medical care would look like. The first part really is just understanding a bit about like the prevalence of trauma, the why. Why is this important for medical practitioners in your work? And then when we talk about, again, like the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study from the States, the prevalence of adverse childhood events was very high. And so I think the first piece is for people in healthcare to kind of understand that this is very prevalent. So, um, you know, in the ACE study, 51% of like the American adults in that study had one to three adverse childhood events. So what does, how does that translate? Well, one in nine of those folks identified as like a person with alcohol use disorder. One in 43 were using injection drugs. 
One in seven had heart disease. One in 10 had attempt suicide attempts, right? This is why it's important in your practice. But then you're like, well, what do I do? Well, I use the term trauma and violence informed practice because I think it's really important also as healthcare professionals to understand like how important the social determinants of health are and how important understanding um, the impact of systemic violence and things like homelessness, racism, the impact of poverty, the impact of gender-based violence. And so when we're talking about this in practice, we have to talk about what's your culture like, what are your beliefs, and what's the environment of, say, your health clinic? If you have awareness of the prevalence of trauma and you don't need to know what someone's history is, like you can just come to a place from compassion being like, okay, this client of mine who comes in and when they come in, I'm like, oh God, not them again. They're challenging, right? Think about, okay, what's going on for this person? What's going on for me? What am I feeling? Am I feeling additional stress thinking about this person coming in? What are they triggering in me? When we talk about TIP, uh, like trauma-informed practice, there are kind of some main principles of optimizing choice, building trustworthiness, developing a sense of safety in the relationship, working in partnership. So it's really about like, how am I building a safe and trusting relationship with this person? And I'm really accepting who this person is in front of me, right? And that it's not our job as healthcare professionals to change people. It's not our job to fix them either. So how do we authentically show up with this other person? And that can be really hard. Like working in healthcare is difficult. And these things sound very basic, but in practice, they don't often happen. And it doesn't mean you have to change who you are. I think it's just being grounded and making that first move of being like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. I'm so happy to see you. Like, what's going on for you? And even if they don't respond in the way that you want, that doesn't matter. You continue to show up in that way of being very um, genuinely appreciative that this person showed up and that they're showing up for themselves by showing up. And being cognizant, and this is the systems piece of being like how the laws and particular drug laws have interfered with and like oppressed people who use drugs and who have mental health issues. And our clients, for example, who experience systemic racism throughout their lives, and that's the historical lineage of their families, that they're not going to trust healthcare. They've experienced harms in healthcare. It starts with ourselves and being very aware of our own biases and, and our own nervous systems, how we self-regulate, how we're grounding, how we're managing our stress, and then how we're showing up for other people. And that's more on like the individual level. That's so wonderful. I, I love these clinical pearls. Let's talk about a specific clinical scenario where you're a physician and you have a patient who's just released from being incarcerated and they're coming into clinic as they need a new prescription and they're on edge and they're irritable and you can see the tension in the room as the uh, healthcare provider as you walk in. What would a trauma and violence informed care look like uh, in this scenario? So the first thing that comes to mind uh, thinking about the, the person coming into your clinic is how's your clinic set up? So is it like a nice inviting place? Um, is it very clear where this person needs to come and check in? Is that person working at the front desk going to show up and be like, hey, great to see you, make eye contact, like ensure kind of that human connection and how the waiting room feels. So if you have like a crowded waiting room and that if someone's coming in and say this person coming from jail is like in withdrawal, it can be very difficult to sit in a busy waiting room where there's a lot going on and a lot of noise. So is there an opportunity for this person to just have a quieter place so that they can feel grounded? Or do you have a system in place where you can prioritize uh, folks who might be a bit, um, more quick to leave and not make their appointment because of 
anxiety or withdrawal or discomfort. And so if this person's coming in for like an oat script, for example, I would just say like, do you have like in your schedule, like flexibility in your same day bookings, right? For this person to be prioritized and seen. And then when you see them again, of like that's that human connection, right? So like saying hello, so nice to see you, like using their names, um, having a safe place for them to sit um, and that they know ideally like when they're going to be seen. I know this is not always feasible. I totally get it. But as much as possible to address kind of that anxiety and tension of waiting, to be compassionate and empathetic of thinking about like this person's worried about, am I going to get my dose? Am I going to get the right dose? Is this dose going to be enough for me? Am I going to have to go buy um, some opiates after this to chip to get to the dose that I want to, right? So can we work in partnership with this person to understand like, what are your needs in the situation? Like, what are you doing to keep safe right now? And I know sometimes there are fears, well, if I open up this box, this person is just going to talk and talk a lot, right? I mean, this begs the question too of like, how are we meeting our clients' needs if that is a concern? Because a person sharing that with you, you probably aren't sharing that with a lot of people, right? And so I think just again, attending to the person and then thinking about, okay, this is the information they presented with me. How do I optimize choice? For this person whose autonomy has been taken away by being in jail and whose autonomy is often shrunk because of the marginalization they experience day to day and, and also by the law or if they're on methadone or like honestly that like people have a very limited range of choice um, because of those constraints. And how are we safety planning for you? Because we know that people coming out of prison who have been on OAT, um, there's often not a lot of script continuity, and it's a high-risk point for people to overdose. That's so ringing true for me for thinking about my own clinic. People are very sensitive to the order that they're seen in and how long the wait time is and making sure they have that physical prescription in their hand and that it's double-checked so that it's correct, um, because I can see uh, their anxiety that, um, you know, it's so perilous to think, like, am I going to be dope sick today? And then how long until I can get my prescription and is the doctor going to screw it up? Yes, which which happens sometimes, right? And I think that has to do with like our workflows, like how we work with our admin assistants and our pharmacies, you know, for folks who are using drugs in this particular context. And after so many years of an opioid crisis, they have that trauma, too, of their friends dying. Most people really just want to be seen for who they are. And they have a lot of fear about being rejected and a lot of fear about being like, you have to jump through X, Y, Z hoop in order to get what you need in this context. You know, we all had clients who have um, gotten really angry coming into the clinic, having to wait, not getting what they need. And, and a lot of the times those folks come back and apologize and we're like, oh, I was not myself, but I was really on edge. And so again, giving people leeway, I think particularly right now, um, around how they express themselves and understand that if folks have had adverse childhood events, like childhood trauma, like they're coming to you with the best skills they know how, and they may not necessarily meet our expectations that we put out there, but those are often hidden as well. I can think about times that I've messed up the math on someone's methadone prescription. And it's such a small error, but the pharmacy has to fax me back or the patient has to bring the prescription back. And it's such an anxious moment where the patient can get really angry, but that um, I have to be understanding that the stakes are high for them. And even though for me, it's just a math error that I did writing a methadone prescription, for them, it, it could be life or death. As someone who's seen a loved one yourself try to navigate these systems, I wondered if you could share a bit about 
what primary care providers could do better. I've supported not only my, my support my sister now as she navigates through the healthcare system for mental health and substance use and whatnot, but I also had this experience with my dad when I was younger. It has been really critical that she's had a full team of support, right? And I think there are some gaps of knowledge about how to best support someone who has complex health issues. And I've also experienced as a family member often not being listened to or heard. And like to navigate that myself, I often speak like a healthcare provider (laughs) when I'm talking to people because I can speak their language. But I know that if I didn't have those skills, she actually probably would not have survived as long as she has, to be frank. It's tricky because it's not just about the individual provider, right? Like I think part of it is we need better systems of care that provide actual safety nets for people. On the individual level, I think how we engage with clients, like how we talk to people or patients is so important. That sense of safety that they can that they can be uh, open with you about what's going on, because I should tell you, like my sister, she's had a fair bit of trauma in her life and she is always waiting for somebody to say that she is pill seeking or that she's manipulative or that she is not doing what you told her to. So I think it's also really crucial that we don't you know, focus so much on like the individual as like, oh, this is their choice. They did this. They need to be punished or they need to hit rock bottom for us to provide care. I told you so. Why can't you do better? Like those narratives are really about us feeling frustrated that we have not felt like we've made a change in this person's world or we care about them and we feel really sad that this is what's happening. Know that your person, your patients coming in have a lot of fears in their own narratives and shame that are coming in there. So just being truly compassionate and practicing acceptance around this person and and really honoring genuine connection makes it a safer space for both of you to actually have this shared interaction and I think have a really great visit. That's very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing from your expertise. Thank you. Christina Chant is a clinical educator, registered nurse, and a member of our editorial board. I loved that interview. I think it's so wonderful to reflect on our own emotions as we deliver clinical care, and then as well to think about what advocacy can we do to change systems and how that gives us resilience. Yes, and it's, you know, kind of a reminder that we're often affected by the things that we're doing professionally in our personal lives. Yeah, I mean, how could you not? The things that we see are so sad, but... Uh, We need to have caring and compassion and boundaries and respect and all of those things wrapped together will help us sustain. Self-reflection is an important part of clinical care. Ask yourself, what am I feeling today? How do I feel when I see a certain patient? This reflection time can help you incorporate trauma and violence-informed care into your work. If you can name your emotions and identify how you feel your feelings, It helps you to identify what is important to you, what brings you joy. It brings us back to why we enjoy caring for our patients, that human connection. Negative feelings are normal feelings. They are just telling us something. Remember that you are not the sole person responsible for what is going on. We're in this together for the long haul and we can show up in a productive way for our patients. And that also means finding compassion for ourselves and our colleagues. Thank you to both of our guests today, Christina Chant and Guy Felicella. Um, I think it was just, you know, really impactful to hear from them. Uh, 
both as you know from an interest in improving healthcare, but also just personally as someone who's got lived PTSD experience. And I think that it's really good to see the kind of compassion and expertise and wisdom that they brought to their field. These conversations today are going to improve my clinical practice. I'm so grateful. The issue of trauma and violence-informed care threads throughout substance use disorders. And so if you found this episode interesting, you can check out our episode on Indigenous perspectives on opiate use disorder, where you can really see these themes emerge as well. This has been Addiction Practice Pod, the podcast of the BC Echo on substance use. And if you want to find out more about some of the research we've mentioned, go to our show notes. You can find out about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and a short survey. We'd really love to hear from you so we can create the best possible podcast for primary care providers. The BC Echo and Substance Use runs bi-weekly interactive online sessions as well. If you want to enhance your knowledge of substance use care and bring it into your practice, you can learn more and register at our website, bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. It was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. I'm David Ball, and this was another great conversation. Thank you, Christy. Oh my gosh, David, this has been a delight. I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. Thank you so much for listening.